As far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat between you and me, us. We want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. Welcome back to another episode. I know I say this all the time, but I'm super, super excited to have our guest, Dr. Alison Phipps, joining us for the first time on The Malcolm Effect in what I know is going to be an insightful conversation. Joining me once again is someone I consider a teacher, a friend, Deej. Let's talk all things feminism, Deej. What are we saying? Okay, so we've had some really good conversations about feminism in the past on this podcast. Some of my favourites being the ones we had with um, people like Joy James. And I think Joy James's interventions into the way we think about feminisms is really important. Her book, Shadowboxing, is one of my favourites. And what was really, what really spoke to me in that book is that in the way we tend to think through feminist thought and feminist praxis, there's often a way in which we collapse and confine these very complex movements. Even with black feminism, we tend to talk about black feminism as this singular unit, as a singular group of thought. But Joy James makes makes us aware of the fact that actually black feminisms exist and each have their own like genealogies and trajectories too. I wanted to ask Alison, in how we tend to teach about feminism and how we tend to talk about feminism, we use the, the kind of the term, the waves, right? We have the first wave, the second wave, the third wave, et cetera, et cetera. I wanted to ask how useful you think this is, especially if we understand that thinking through something in, in the sort of language of the waves tends to confine it to a particular time in a particular space and also presumes that these forms of thought, these forms of action, these forms of praxis come about in an almost linear way when if we actually rigorously kind of critique this, we find that that linearity perhaps is not as smooth as a one, two, three, as we think it is. So yeah, that's my question for you, Alison. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. It's lovely to be in conversation with you both. I mean, I think you've kind of summed it up, Khadija, really. So I agree. I don't think it's very useful to teach feminism in waves. I've certainly done it in the past. I think in the early days of sort of women's studies, gender studies in the academy, that is how we taught feminism. We taught, you know, the first wave, the suffragettes, the second wave, the radical feminists, the third wave, postmodernism, the fourth wave, the internet. And of course, that was kind of identifiable moments in white Western mainstream feminism. But I think you're right that that gives the impression that Feminism is linear, and it also centres that white Western mainstream feminism in quite problematic ways and homogenises it. So I think, I don't know what I would say now in terms of how we ought to engage with feminism, maybe dynamics of feminism, maybe iterations of kind of feminism, maybe conversations of feminism is better, because obviously we do have these themes that kind of crop up and become dominant and then sort of work through but it's not a simple case of kind of historical feminist waves and there is much more cross fertilization between different feminisms than perhaps we might think from the sort of waves model if that makes sense. No absolutely and I think that it is a huge problem within the context of academia. I find that 
no matter what discipline you're in, when it comes to historicizing the subject matter of that discipline, there tends to be this trend of locating and fixing moments in time as if they were clear cut, as if during this period we had this dominant model and then it changed to this dominant model. When we all, of course, know that epistemology, thought, praxis, oftentimes is far more transitionary than it is ever a fixed and kind of easily identifiable idea or model or like, you know, piece of thought. And I think it's it's also, especially now, entering the lay world in very problematic ways. Um, mm. I know we're going to talk about the sort of influx of male kind of radicalization or the radicalization of men but I think it's necessary here because of even the thing that you mentioned about how we you know and I did it too when I was teaching an A-level like postmodern feminism right and we see mm. for example people like Jordan Peterson come out and basically blame all the ills of thought in the current era to this attachment to postmodernism and I remember I, I, I you know met a man who seem to have also fallen through that radicalization sort of lens. And he was just like, oh, well, you know, critical race theory, feminism, all that stuff, it's all postmodernism. And I really <laughs> asked, I was like, what do you think postmodernism is? And he was like, it's the denial of, of any unified truth for the perception of social constructivism or like a social construction. I was like, so you're talking about social constructionism then? And then he was like, I don't know what you mean. And then I had to sort of tease out the idea that even when we talk about, when we say things like postmodern, when we say things like post-structuralist, we're oftentimes talking about a period of time where there was a lot of sort of like complex thought happening there, right? There was a lot of different academic articulations of ideas going on there. And we use postmodern as a sort of like simple way to locate a particular time. But people now view it within the lens of an almost identitarian category, within a lens of an almost reactionary category. Yeah, so definitely. Then question, so then my question becomes, how do we then, I suppose, shift and push past a lot of those types of ways that we fix and locate thought, especially because of how it's being weaponized and used by especially reactionary sort of like politics to demonize very complex movements and to demonize very complex thought mm, it's so difficult I mean my my goodness if only postmodernism, gender studies and critical race theory had as much power you know as they say it does I think it's really difficult question especially for us as educators because obviously when you're teaching this stuff there is, to a certain extent, a drive to simplify, especially when you're teaching at the kind of more introductory levels. But I think sometimes we can oversimplify things. And I have learned that actually, you know, in my life through having two quite young kids, young people can grasp things in much more nuance than we actually think, think they can. And I think that one of the things that I now try to do in my teaching is to try to encourage students to sit in the mess. So I always now start my teaching of gender through the concept of intersectionality, which obviously we can talk about that as well. It, you know, it may not be the ideal concept, but I think it's quite a useful one to as an introduction to gender. And I always use the example of a bowl of noodles when I'm talking about intersectionality. Oftentimes when people talk about intersectionality, I think they often think of roads and I often think of those sort of North American roads that are very straight and very kind of uniform and very even crossing over each other. And to me, that's not 
a sufficient metaphor for what we're talking about when we're talking about the kind of the mess of gender in the contemporary world. So I like to talk about a bowl of noodles and you can't pull out one noodle without pulling out a whole bunch of different noodles. And there's, you know, bits of mushroom stuck to it and bits of chili and bits of other stuff, all of which you have to kind of sit with and you don't have to understand it all, but you do have to kind of engage with it all. And I think that that allows a different way of sitting with complexity and a way of not being what's the word not being distressed by complexity like you know being able to be uncomfortable and sit with more than one idea at once which I think that the the modern world doesn't really prepare us that well for because we have you know very oversimplified media we have kind of soundbite social media we have a national curriculum that teaches to the test and the right or wrong answer so by the time young people get to university they've been inculcated into this this way of thinking and then we become discomforted by complexity um i don't know whether i answered your question there i sort of went off on a tangent but, oh no um, i think you did i think you absolutely did and it is something that i'm sitting with too as an educator and i I'm, I'm learning as i'm sort of interacting more and more with students that especially in this current era of the neoliberal university and the types of subjectivities that we are often pushing to students right we often assume mm. students assume, think of themselves as customers but I think we actually push that identity onto them and that's mm. actually what my research is about thinking through you know the neoliberalization of education and specifically how black students are engaging with the neoliberal university and there I'm actually having to really recognize that it's not like we we oftentimes baby students in a way we, we oversimplify because we have this model where they're the customer and we're terrified that if our mm. teaching's too difficult that our NSS scores or something is going to go down or our the, the unit review is going to be lower but actually there's a lot to be gained from welcoming students to that idea that this isn't necessarily about and I say this a lot and I say this to Mamadou that learning isn't necessarily about having all the right answers but rather having good enough questions mm. that can open you up to thinking through the challenges of life and life is complicated and it is messy mm. and I think teaching that messiness as an introduction is a far better way to actually prepare students for difficult concepts for difficult ideas and for discomfort than the sort of introductory oftentimes oversimplification that we're we're sometimes doing in academia. I think so. And it's okay to say, I don't know. And I think that's something that students are, are quite afraid of. But I also think that's something that we're quite afraid of as well, to say, I don't know, perhaps because there are customers and we're kind of, we're delivering a product to them. And we think that product has to be complete in some way. I think that we've sort of lost the idea that we're all in the classroom, exploring and learning together. So I completely agree with you. And I think your research is so necessary. Thank you. So my next kind of question was around the crisis that we're facing in Britain with the gender critical movement. What's been really interesting for me is I've been trying to understand the genealogy because I think that any juncture that you're at, right, has a genealogy, it has a mm. history, it has a trajectory, and Britons, and especially the kind of popularity of gender critical feminisms, as they call them, I don't think they're gender critical at all, or as we call mm. them, turfisms, and their dominance, their popularity, their almost cult-like movements must have a particular trajectory, right? 
mm-hmm. must have a sort of lineage of radicalization that leads to the point. And so what is, and through your research, through the work you've been doing, and also even acknowledging the fact that you have also faced oftentimes the negativity that comes through thinking through an inclusive form of feminism. What has been the genealogy that has led us to this juncture with with TERFs, with the gender critical movement? Mm, yeah, I, I, I mean, I'm not even sure whether I can fully answer that either. Sophie Lewis is brilliant on this. I don't know whether you've read any of her work or listened to her on any podcast, but she has a, a probably a better grasp than me of this. But I think that it's a variety of different things. So for a start, radical feminism in the 1970s, white Western radical feminism, which is the lineage that some of these gender critical feminists claim, was not necessarily so essentialist and so trans exclusionary. You had people such as Janice Raymond, who obviously was, but then some of the big figures of that form of radical feminism, Andrea Dworkin, Catherine McKinnon, were not trans exclusionary feminists precisely because they saw gender as very much socially constructed. So something happened between this radical feminism and what we have now, which is kind of almost like a bad cover version of radical feminism. And it's to do with kind of focusing in very much on the body and particular characteristics of the body. Sophie Lewis talks about this being rooted in the development from radical feminism into cultural feminism, which was a more separatist feminism, which was very much much focused on particular types of bodies and the idea of making a safe a safe space by keeping particular types of bodies out. You can also see the roots of today's gender critical rhetoric in some of the feminist scholarship around sexual violence from people such as Susan Brown Miller, who talked about the penis as a weapon, who I don't think she meant it literally even, but it has been taken literally and kind of morphed into what AGM Rich actually called a penis with a life of its own argument in a way. So in today's gender critical feminism, it's almost as if there are disembodied parts with agency that are committing sexual violence some of the time. So you've got that kind of strand out of feminism. And then you also, I think Sophie Lewis talks about the kind of sceptic movement of the 1990s and onwards, which was very much focused on kind of reasserting science in the face of various perceived challenges to science. And that has an influence on some of these gender critical discourses. Some of them, which aren't necessarily rooted in radical feminism, come out of there. And then also, I think more recently, you do have the culture war, the opportunity provided by the culture wars and by the kind of resurgent right wing ideology that's taking precedence in many parts of the world now. And the fact that that is very much focused on kind of traditional genders, traditional families, reasserting the kind of normative, reproductive, heterosexual capitalist subject and the idea that so-called gender ideology, which was a term that was defined by the Vatican in the early 1990s, is a threat to that. And I think what's happened is that this culture war era that we're in has given opportunities to gender critical feminists who don't have particularly good principles and seem to be kind of willing to share platforms with and collaborate with whoever, because it's become a kind of single issue politics 
whereas 1970s radical feminism, for all its faults, was not. Thank you so much. That's really, really interesting to think about, again, how gender criticality as this movement is indebted to a lot of reactionary politics, actually. Mm. And the line that they're towing is their attachment to a radical feminism, but a lot of the claims they're making perhaps are illegitimate within that lens of the radical feminisms that they claim. Mm. I also wonder sometimes, because I think, and you know, myself and Mamadou are notorious for, for trying to think through this, probably because we're, we're Marxists, the materiality of any yep. sort of juncture. And I wonder if, and I've been thinking about this and discussing this with friends of mine, especially in the last 10 years, the growth of this movement of, of turfism and gender criticality. Because 10 years ago, I felt like it was there, but it wasn't as popularized, right? It didn't mm. have so much of a hold. In the, When I was starting my undergrad, I was in a space of queer people. I was very kind of used to being around trans people. So the notion that trans women were somewhat excluded or could be excluded from feminism was just not something I even thought about. It wasn't something I'd even pop, like even heard about during that time. And I find that perhaps then a lot of the way they're able to leverage their arguments and a lot of the way they're able to capture a mass of people who potentially were not sort of in the know or were not necessarily attached to that politic comes about through the very real destruction of domestic violence provision in the sort of mm. reign of the Tories over the last sort of 12 years. But with that, they've, instead of looking critically at the materiality of what is truly affecting women's rights, what is truly limiting women's abilities to have so, um, safe spaces, isn't this boogeyman old other that they've created, but rather the government, rather politics, rather capitalism. And I find that trans people in this current era have become a sort of excuse, right? Mm -hmm. Rather than them actually looking at what is the problem, looking at what has actually excluded and limited and reduced provisions for women. And that always leads me back to the materiality of the subject, right? The lack of space, the lack of resources and mm -hmm. how within the history of capitalistic movements, using a sort of fascistic politic that picks a specific either ethnic, sexual or gendered other and blames them for the problems of capitalism is an it's such a successful tool, right? It's been done so many times. And so mm -hmm. I wonder where there is space for that argument about the increase of this politics, the popularity of this politics being almost a sort of like insurgency of sorts to, again, distract people from the reality of issues facing women and instead blaming this kind of other that they've kind of completely demonised. Yeah, and I think that's exactly right. And I think when I was writing my book, and one of the reasons why I wrote my book was that I really started to notice, I mean, the gender critical, yeah, you're right, the gender critical, when did it start really? It was about 2015, wasn't it, in, the, in this country, when the Gender Recognition Act was being kind of proposed to be reformed, that the gender critical feminists really started to come to the forefront. And like you, before that, I kind of, I was aware of them, but I sort of thought, oh, we're, we're moving in the right direction. This is going to kind of resolve in, in some way. And I think one of the reasons why I wrote my book was I really started to notice similarities between this resurgent gender critical feminism and Brexit and Trump slash make America great again, in the sense that all three of those dynamics are a politics of scarcity, 
which in some ways is absolutely the case. There is very real scarcity in the world, but a politics of kind of scarcity without any criticality about that. So there just is scarcity. There's no way to change that. So what we need to do is protect our own resources from those others that want to take our resources because there isn't enough to go around. And there's no sort of mindset of actually, well, there could be enough to go around if certain sections of society weren't hoarding the majority of the wealth. So that's the first thing. It's a kind of politics of scarcity. And the second thing, which you rightly identify is it's a politics of resentment. Again, resentment against that other who is either taking our jobs or taking our spaces or, you know, taking our places on the women-only shortlists or, or what have you. Again, taking the system itself as given and sort of fighting for the scraps in a way. I really like Nadine El-Anani's formulation of kind of Britain and Britain's wealth as the spoils of empire and these battles over immigration as being battles over actually the spoils of empire. So, you know, it's this idea that people are fighting over these scraps, these spoils, these things which are inherently unjust anyway, rather than taking a look and and, and thinking, well, actually, there could be enough for all of us if we all work together. So I think you're right. It's very much a material politics. And it's very much a sort of anti-solidarity politics in a way absolutely and the the frustrating thing about this is that you see it everywhere right myself and Mamadou have spoken about this within even the context of racial kind of emancipation whereby very much now we're having a this huge return and Alana Lenton talks similarly to a sort of bioessentialism of race right Mm. on the basis of this scarcity on the basis of well, you have to prove to us that you are black enough. You have to mm. prove to us that you look black enough, that you act black enough, right? That you have a genealogy that is inherently attached to Africa before you can claim blackness and before you can claim any of the awards, any of the scraps, as you as you mentioned, any of the scarcity of resources that were provided within this community. And, it, and, and as you see, it's it's becoming ever more polarizing and places like Twitter are a hotbed of especially mm. these types of essentialisms. And so I think that the essentialism that we're seeing within the movements of gender criticality, the essentialism we're seeing in the return to a politics of, you know, racial exclusionarism and, you know, race science in its crudest form again, it is inherently attached to these capitalist technologies that seek to obscure us from the relationship between ourselves and the materiality of the realities of this false sense of scarcity that's presented to us through capitalism. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and in, in these types of conditions, then you do, you see different forms of bordering emerge, don't you? Even amongst groups that are themselves marginalized, you know, it's that that seems to be what people do when they feel the resources are threatened in the absence of in the absence of, I guess, political education, in the absence of spaces for us to organize and as you said social media does tend to be very much about one-upmanship and kind of more soundbite type understandings rather than these more difficult conversations about well where does this scarcity come from how might we resist this scarcity because there is enough to go around it's just it's been completely maldistributed absolutely absolutely yes absolutely that's that's the big question for now right is how do we 
engage with the work of political education? How do we challenge and build and organize? Because I think especially now, part of how the right are able to move so quickly and radicalize so efficiently is that currently on the left, we really have lost that organizational and principled organization Mm. organizational you know capacity imagination and ability whereas the sort of you know reactionary movements seem to be far more organized and I even look at the way that you know um online gender critical members do these coordinated attacks and I think you've Mm. been subjected to it friends of mine have been subjected to it you know I've very much been on the kind of receiving end of it through a different lens right because there is Mm. a sort of growing reactionary politic in sort of the kind of black and racial, um, racially oppressed groups as well, that's now mm. also gaining traction, right? Because the kind of face of the gender critical movement for a long time has been this very middle class, you know, white woman, the kind of mums net women, et cetera, et cetera. But we are seeing in our communities a growing radicalization. Mm. And that growing radicalization, however, looks a little different. And it looks a little different because what we're seeing is black women and you know women of color who have been traditionally excluded from conversations about femininity who in the words of oh I've forgotten her name in the words of a really wonderful scholar and 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 a lot of people within the black kind of queer studies movement the ungendering of, Mm. of, of black womanhood right that affinity to never really being viewed through the lens of white femininity that's always excluded us And the reactionary politic emerging out of that is something called femininity coaches, right? Mm, And there's a yeah, there's a movement called like the divine feminine, where you know women are on YouTube, on TikTok, sometimes are paying thousands of pounds to learn how to be that type of docile feminine that is presumed to not come naturally to us as black women, right? And this is oftentimes around the politics of what it means to, you know, be feminine enough to be also hypergamous, right? To be able to mm. marry upwards. And so this is a thing that I think that like, I'd like to see a lot more of the conversations about these online forms of radicalization, about the kind of permeation of these gender critical ideas within the lens of a sort of black experience, because I think that's completely ignored or, or, or not, or not, not well known about. And yeah. the sort of divine feminine, the femininity coaching, they are one kind of side, but we also had a, have a growing kind of more reactionary side called divestors who are basically against the idea of black women marrying black men because they view black men as essentially violent in a very similar way that TERFs view all men as essentially violent and as such sex is the kind of feature that determines violence Mm. and that is something that is irredeemable from anyone once allocated male those things are permeating in these really intricate and complex ways outside of the center of that movement in a manner that I think within the context of Western feminism or even Western critiques of gender criticality, you won't necessarily see, right, unless you're part of this Mm. community. No, I didn't. I mean, how utterly depressing. And are these movements being similarly kind of funded, influenced, supported by outside forces with vested interests in them? Now they are, absolutely, Mm. because of their popularity on social media, you are having a growing sort of talking heads of the movement 
who, when you look clearly, are politically aligned to the right. Mm. I mean, there are a lot of the women on Twitter, for example, who've been exposed as having or being in relationships with very open alt-right, right-wing white men, but these mm. are black women, right? Mm, yeah. <laughs> you know, who are talking about the essential violence of the black male subject and who are preaching a sort of like return to traditional femininity, which is really interesting because they're using the images of white traditional femininity that have not mm. actually really existed within the black community to promote this idea of sort of like climbing up and marrying up and moving away from poverty. And at the core of this politics too, is that politics of scarcity yes. but articulated in a different way, right? There is a little bit of substance to the kind of fear within the experiences of black women if you think about the traditional exclusion from the capitalistic market mm. from from all forms of sort of capitalist capitalistic wealth accumulation they are now creating an are and very much engaging in this scarcity politic but rather a scarcity politic that recognizes that in order to survive within capitalism you have to engage in a competitive way femininity becomes a competition through mm. which one can then achieve material security. Mm. And it feel, that feels like the kind of the ultimate success of neoliberal slash austerity discourse, doesn't it? You know, this idea that things are scarce, therefore you have to compete for scarce resources. Um, and the idea that things could be different is not really even entertained. That's really fascinating. Really not fascinating. Yeah. yeah, and that's the thing about why I'm, I'm so concerned with the current moment because the return of essentialism is is something we need to be actually frightened about because mm. it permeates every aspect of society and it is a rearticulation of a fascist politic you know yes. it's a fascist politic it is it is and i think there's something here about that relationship between neoliberalism and neoconservatism that wendy brown talks about which is quite important that neoliberalism sort of needs some of these neoconservative and quite essentialist discourses in order to justify inequalities in a new way because you don't have the old class system necessarily so much at the forefront you have to justify inequalities with all kinds of different ideologies i think that's that's really really interesting how old are these black women who are doing who are engaging in this femininity coaching are they young um, so yeah if you go on youtube mm. and if you're on tiktok we're talking mm. about girls from the age of like 18 to mm. their maybe like mid 20s but okay. then there is a sort of older femininity coaching that has existed and predates that that mm. also was kind of the millionaire matchmaking type thing you know right yeah has existed or the you know high net value matchmaking and in those in scenarios too they kind of teach and train women to perform a type of very white western femininity mm. so interesting and yet so depressing obviously as well and I think the right what you were saying before about the right and its organization I mean I've been at the receiving end of some quite nasty attacks from gender critical feminists on Twitter which have kind of permeated into the mainstream media and into my private life as well and and it's been awful but also on one level I'm actually quite impressed you know I'm kind of how do you manage to be so organized you know why can't we do that I mean not attack people and make their lives miserable but why why don't we have the same level of organization that they seem to have in these reactionary circles 
and I'm not sure that I fully understand why. Yeah. I mean, I feel like hate is a really good organizing principle for them. Yeah. It's hate and it's fear. And because they make people feel materially insecure by the prospects of anyone outside of their concept of womanhood mm. gaining anything, that's a real threat, I think, that is, is a completely misplaced threat. Because again, mm. the threat is with the state, the threat is with capitalism. But if you can take this very kind of complex threat this huge institutional threat that has a long history has complex technologies and instead narrow it down to a very small population of people who lack power and organization and Mm. who lack the possibilities of defending themselves in the manner that the gender critical people can that Mm. makes a perfect subject to be the target of your campaigns right It makes it so much simpler. It's a lot harder to get women to say, hey, maybe it's capitalism. Maybe it's this so many centuries old entity that is in every institution that is part of our ideological training. It's part of how we think about ourselves as women. Mm. What's making us not be able to afford our childcare. It's what's making us live in a cost of living. It's what's making us precarious and instead go, oh no it's not any of those things it's these specific people who are trying Mm. to pretend to be you to take what is you know your right it's it's a very simple simple gambit right yeah it is yeah and if you say well we just have to pressure people these specific people enough to back off from us that's Mm. all you have to do you don't have to challenge systems which is, in, but interestingly enough, again, I think, you know, that was the case maybe early on, but now they are absolutely challenging institutions, but challenging institutions in a manner that, again, is reducing the rights of a specific population of people who are marginalized, right? So yeah. they're happy to challenge institutions. They're happy to genuinely lobby against policy, mm. right? To exclude others, then lobby policy to actually upend and change and completely destroy the system. No, that's right. Oppressing us. Yeah. No, they're just border police, really, aren't they? Yeah. That's that's the basic kind of model. And I and I guess kind of going on from what you've said, you know, the fact that on the left we do tend to try to reach for more complex explanations sort of fits in with that. You know, we're 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 so busy trying to understand everything that oftentimes we don't have the time, the capacity, the funding to organize. You know, there's a lot of money being pumped into gender critical circles, certainly at the moment. And I think we're also really busy, aren't we? I mean, there's just a, a kind of reality of life that we are all really, really busy. The neoliberal workplace is sucking the life out of all of us. And if you are of a more progressive mindset, you're probably doing various things in your community as well. You're probably kind of trying to trying to do your best wherever you can. And we're all a bit burnt out. Absolutely. Yeah, brilliant. Th- thank you so much. Honestly, I feel like this has just been a conversation I can just sit back and listen to. And I'm really enjoying both of you exchange ideas. But in something I've been thinking about, even though I radically resist rooting my analysis in in pop culture or in celebrity, in trying to understand the radicalization of a lot of men today, given that Andrew Tate, mm. I think he amasses billions of views. I think, I believe at one point last year, he was the most uh, most Googled person, more than Trump, for example. And I'm trying to really understand, again, I know recently, Deed, you said that we have to look at maybe 
the effects that liberal, neoliberalism has on masculinity for perhaps trying as a point of departure for, for perhaps understanding or what we can engage in a material analysis of masculinity. But in thinking about our current moment, again, thank you, your piece. I believe your co-authored piece with Isabel Young mm-hmm. on uh, neoliberalism and laddish culture was a good starting point as well. But I'm really trying to understand this phenomenon of Andrew Tate, where feminism becomes a catch-all that means everything and nothing at the same time. I'm really trying to understand what is old, what thoughts do you have or what do we owe to this rising, what we call the incel culture, this rise on mass where men are taking to figures like who are violently misogynistic. If we were taking like a material analysis towards it, what would you say? Mm, yeah, that's a really good question. And again, I'm not sure I can answer it fully because I probably don't fully grasp some of the more recent developments in this. I mean, when I wrote the article with Isabel, um, I think that was based on research that we did in sort of 2013, 14. And we were really looking at lad culture amongst privileged white men in universities. And it was it was basically kind of Russell Group, which is more elite universities in the UK, and more middle class, upper class white men at those institutions. And we, and lad culture being kind of sexism, racism, classism, homophobia, transphobia, all bound up together in these kind of forms of behavior and banter, which kind of can slip over quite easily into sexual harassment and into sexual violence. And I think we really theorized it at that time as a an an attempt to reassert territory, so based in these sort of material dynamics by which there had been a certain amount of shift in gender relations amongst that particular group of young, relatively privileged, mostly white people, whereby young women were competing on a more equal basis with men in education and in higher education. And we really started to see the lad culture as a way of these lads kind of trying to reclaim their space, trying to reclaim their territory, trying to kind of demean the women that they were having to compete with because they didn't feel like they should be having to compete with them. So a sense of sort of lost entitlement, which again can be compared to the sense of that sort of underpins Brexit, Trump, and maybe also the incel culture that came after that, you know, the idea that I am entitled to have sexual relationships with women and women that I consider to be desirable. And the, the fact that that's not happening for me has got nothing to do with me. It's, it, you know, it's, it's these women who are the problem. So I think there is a sort of aggrieved sense of entitlement at play here that can quite easily get violent, which has been played on by all kinds of reactionary groups for their own reasons, right? So I think that that to me, there, there is a line between those two things, but I think there's probably more at work as well. And of course, I don't know so much about what's going on in other communities of men as well. I don't know whether you have more yeah, insight was, into that. I was actually thinking about this, Mama June. Um, the reason why I even got to the, the kind of conclusion I got to when I tweeted about the materiality of this and you know the crisis of manhood within the context of neoliberalism was because I've I've received and had a lot of students this this last few years who are very very much fans of people like Andrew Tate and fans of people like Peterson too and it's really interesting you tend to have the there's a split as well right and this is another thing the sort of manosphere as we call it is again a sort of flattening of very complex and different communities mm. and I've learned this through these conversations with students actually 
And so you have actually within the sort of manosphere, a splitting of different types of subjectivities and different types of identities, right? And these identities and how they are split also determine which kind of group within the manosphere these people oftentimes attach themselves to. From what I've learned, there's this sort of like intellectual or men who view themselves as sort of like intellectual, but burdened by feminism, who tend to follow the Jordan Peterson route, right? Because they think of him as an intellectual. He's a pseudo intellectual um, and he postures as, an, as a sort of public intellectual. So the men who are sort of like wanting to intellectualize their, their, their struggle, their difficulties in masculinity tend to focus on Peterson. And then you have men who are genuinely struggling with intimate relationships, men who have, who view themselves as deserving the capacity to have, you know, intimate and sexual relationships with women, with women, but because of one, their material circumstances being too poor or um, not being deemed traditionally masculine or, you know, attractive enough, they kind of fall into the incel route. And it's important. And what I learned from these students was that, you know, the incels and the Jordan Peterson sort of red pillars don't necessarily get along, right? Mm. And red pilling is the sort of like, idea from the matrix that they took the right pill and now they're awake to the world right they're awake to the world in a particular intellectual way and those are those those tend to be more closely aligned with peterson and of course they're people who intersect and who fit into all branches and then you've got the black pillars and the black pillars are where that very very violent you know non-obscured misogyny is very much accepted and that idea that women, in fact, do owe them sex because women are subordinate to men. So you have, even with this manifest, you have these different communities and different sort of rationales as to what makes them part of each community. But the unifying factor through speaking to students, through speaking to people who've watched Peters and et cetera, et cetera, is that their radicalization happens in a, in a similar way all radicalization happens, right? You have a guy on YouTube who's maybe watching some videos and who then clicks on one video, right? And this video is talking about what it means to be a man. This video is giving them tips about how to dress, how to mm -hmm. be more confident, how to be more assertive. It's telling them that, you know, in this world, all you have to rely on is yourself. And as a man, it's up to you to look after yourself or you'll get depressed or people won't like you or you'll be isolated. And that's how it starts, mm -hmm. right? And that's how it starts through the Peterson route, through the incel route, and through the Tate route is that like young boys are coming to Tate, not because he's initially spouting out lots of misogyny, but they'll see a video where he's talking about this reaffirmation of masculinity. He's giving them tips on, you know, how to dress, how to talk to girls, you know, how to be confident, what workouts to do at the gym. Mm. And they slowly then become attached to this advice right about masculinity and then they watch more and more and more and then the implicit image of misogyny and sometimes violence then captures them mm. and so I think we tend to think of these communities as just these men who just cut like you know already hate women already misogynistic and then just decide to watch misogynistic content when actually it's a very traditional very standard means of radicalization which starts through feeling a little insecure wanting a bit of advice, not really having the types of friendships where you could actually ask for advice, feeling hurt, feeling lonely, feeling isolated, having someone tell you, hey, if you do this workout, you can look fit and girls will talk to you. Or, hey, if you do this particular sort of like, you know, relaxation mantra, girls will like you. Or if you think about yourself as this sort of like man, if you aspire to be more alpha, to be more confident, the world is your oyster. 
that's actually mm. the trajectory and at the core of these things is that crisis of neoliberalism right and let's be clear we talk about men but neoliberalism creates loneliness out of all of us because it you know in in Thatcher's own words there is nothing such a society and if there is nothing such a society there is nothing such as community and if there is no community then absolutely the neoliberal project as it wants us to think of ourselves is a project of crude individualism and whilst men tend to think of themselves as being more able to deal with the kind of neoliberalization and the individualization of their identities, they desperately need community too. And mm. where Nadish culture, you know, was organized around a real kind of community kind of behavior, the kind of contemporary era, a lot of men don't really have friends, I've noticed, you know? And there are a lot of men who no, did real. not necessarily fit in with the kind of conceptions of lad culture, who aren't like football fans, who aren't, you know, who might be a, a bit nerdy, who might have liked a different type of thing. And so struggled to find the real kind of as crude as it is community that comes with that kind of brashed kind of behavior and instead are, are being radicalized in these ways. And it's interesting enough, Alison, they even have a concept of the traditional lad within these mm. bits, right? They call them chads. They're men who are kind of dumb, just attractive and are laddish, are frat broy in the context of America. But right. these men that are being radicalized here aren't like that. Mm. They're men so, who already don't fit into traditional masculinity. But they are also completely neoliberal subjects, aren't they? I mean, they're lonely, they're isolated, they're miserable, but they also think that they can remake themselves by consuming Jordan Peterson's content, content which is basically, as far as I understand it, kind of wash your face and hate women. That's his kind of message. Yep. And, and eat lots of meat. <laughs> and eat lots of meat. But once you've done that, then you are entitled to have sexual relationships. And, you know, there's something quite kind of consumerist about it as well. I'm entitled to my consumer rights. So that it is, it's really, really interesting that lad culture has gone online and there's obviously a shift in how it's being articulated, but there is some of the same kind of dynamics of competition and entitlement that you see in sort of more traditional lad culture, as well as this sort of profound isolation and loneliness and misery that we really, we do need to take seriously. You're absolutely right. That's what I want to put a question to both of you, actually, if that's okay. Because I want I know Eid, you've said something really interesting. You said these men are not reading bell hooks and then getting depressed, <laughs> you know. And I think and I think this is a very uh, important point. But something I've noticed in my own, you know, spaces I go to where I frequent, let's say the barber shop or in conversations with some of my uh, male friends, one of the things they would they often say is, Well, for so long, for the last 10 years, women have been allowed to say men are trash. Mm-hmm. So what do you think the reaction is going to be to that? If you had this, I want to know what you'd think of or what your response to that would be to both of you. Mm, that, yeah, that's that's really interesting. I mean, I think I, I, I'll let you answer that first, Deej, because this is probably a context that you're more familiar with in terms of the community <laughs> yeah. that you share. You, you go first. <laughs> yeah, do you know what? It's What's been really interesting is I think reactionaryism creates reactionaryism. And Alison has pointed out very clearly in her work how the contemporary moment has lended itself to lots of articulations of reactionary feminisms right like we talk Mm. about for example gender critical feminisms which is a particular I wouldn't even call it reactionary I'd call it fascistic really but then you have sort of more reactionary elements like the liberalized liberal feminisms right which is what Mm. is the most popular articulated form of of feminism especially in online spaces and especially young um, young women 
Mm. And I, I find that whilst liberal articulations of feminism have their problems, at its core, you know, these women are also turning into the perfect neoliberal subject. Now, the thing about neoliberalism is that it doesn't lend itself to the types of communities and kinships that from the kind of anger that you see these men hold that they actually want and desire, but don't really know how to articulate. So you've got this sort of individualization of the, the 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 feminine subject of women who view themselves as having to again play this game in the neoliberal market in order to attain levels of material security, but they've kind of attached themselves to that in a very positive way, and they're doing well at it too, right? <laughs> they're doing well at mm. it, and men are now seeing that as a sort of encroaching of their territory because the perfect neoliberal subject in their eyes should have been a man because the man is the head. So the man is the one who is able to be individual and alone and be able to survive. But the crisis of loneliness is showing them that that's actually not possible. And so when they kind of articulate, well, women are saying we're trash, they're very much making it clear to us that the new subject of womanhood, the neoliberal woman who doesn't see herself as needing kinship with a man oftentimes, that doesn't see herself as needing the sort of traditions of familial community or can can much better create forms of community that they like and that they're able to engage with because of how women are socialized as the person that is after them they become in the same way the trans woman becomes this obscure this violent subject in the eyes of the gender critical movement the liberal woman the neoliberal woman also becomes this demon this terror in the eyes of men who feel as though that neoliberalism was their territory but haven't actually been able to survive it as well as the people that they demonize and and i think that's that's the that's the problem here i think that you know it's two reactionary things interacting with each other and at the core of it right i think that women are saying men are trash point that's often used and articulated it's weak right it's weak because they're not becoming misogynist because women are saying these things or sometimes women are being, you know, a little bit glib on nine and stuff like that. It's because they feel as though they deserve something from these women. And so when women reject that and when they reject that in such a way, they feel personally attacked by it. They feel like what is theirs to conquer is no longer theirs. And I think that's where you see it becoming a lot more violent. That's where you see it becoming a lot more kind of cultish and how they organize themselves. This men are trash in in the barbers. Is this is this um, being said by black women about black men, or is this what, what's the demographic here? Oh, yeah, good. it tends to be black women, and and it's just that hyperbole. Mm. In the same way, men have for for millennia hyperbolically talked about women. A lot of women will, for example, have like bad experiences with men and be like, "I am done. All of mm, you are trash." Yeah. It's just a reaction. It's yeah. not necessarily a politically charged term, but mm. men are taking this in a politically charged way. Now, that's not to say there are there are there aren't real articulations of a really problematic politics. And when I talked about the, you know, like the divestors, for example, who have completely excluded black men from their dating pool because they believe that black men are inherently violent mm. and black men and. Uh, and you know the, the the black woman subject has for so long protected black men that they refuse to do that labor they completely x themselves out of that and in and and view the view black men as a basically like not a category through which they will date or marry or settle with etc mm. i mean there's also there's a similar kind of men are trash current in in mainstream white feminism which probably comes from a slightly different place and it's to do with the kind of massive lack of intersectionality in mainstream feminist 
discourse, um, the idea that men are eternal perpetrators and women are eternal victims. I mean, I think there's some of the hyperbole there as well that Khadija talks about, you know, oh, I'm done with men, you know, that that kind of idea. But there's also a slightly more dangerous current that does inform gender critical feminism, you know, the idea that these these sex roles are kind of set in stone and are biological, which leads to a lot of different problems. And also, I think it speaks to a kind of feminism that is about power. It's yeah. about kind of acquiring power, not dismantling power. So what Nancy Fraser would call equal opportunity domination, which is very much the kind of aim of mainstream white feminism so yeah it's quite interesting but again you know that that one phrase men are trash is coming from different communities of women probably for some some of the some different reasons some of the same reasons as well no absolutely and I think um your mentioning of specifically the more dangerous elements of that politic I've seen in the sort of younger Dworkin McKinnonites and and it's terrifying, actually. I've engaged with some of them and it's terrifying. And I was I was quite surprised. I was like, wow, we're in 2023 now and we're seeing a return to political lesbianism as a <laughs> mm. as a thing that people are organizing and mobilizing around. And and a lot of these sort of younger, theory-orientated, gender critical women are also terrifying because a lot of the the politics they espouse is getting more and more problematic. Recently mm. on Twitter, there was a young girl, I think perhaps around 15 but you know her age is a little suspect because I think she said she was older after you know particular types of engagements who said that you know something along the lines of you know the pervasiveness of rape culture is why people need safe words and there's a posturing around the complete inability for women to be agentic and there's this new politics that consent cannot and does not exist in any form because mm. of the primary antagonisms of, of of maleness and and femaleness and this notion of maleness being this irredeemably violent body and violent entity as such any engagement with men any engagement mm-hmm. with someone who they deem as male, which again doesn't necessarily isn't necessarily exclusive to men, is a non-consensual and non-agentic engagement. I think that's really, really dangerous. It's terrifying. It's terrifying. And that does come directly out of Catherine McKinnon's kind of theorization of heterosexuality as being a dominant a dynamic of dominance and submission, such that consent isn't actually possible within the structures of heterosexuality, which is absolutely terrifying and not particularly helpful, actually, in terms of navigating relationships and sex in any case. And you can see that, actually, in a lot of the younger women who are now coming into the activist scene around violence against students. Their model is very much based on that idea that consent isn't possible. If there's any kind of power imbalance between two people, consent isn't possible, which I think is is really, really terrifying. It's infantilizing. And we're just teaching women to be afraid. Yes. And probably and infant- also, exactly. That infantilization is also, gro- like, I, I feel like we need to have like a longer conversation because I think there's a lot of things that you know about, especially about the kind of historical and lineage and the kind of gender critical movement as it pertains to kind of middle age and older kind of women. The younger strands of this articulation is permeating in such violent ways. We now have a whole movement of kind of people 
who view particular age differences in, in, in heterosexual couplings as grooming, for example. I know, so like, it's terrifying. They will view a 22-year-old and a 25-year-old as grooming. You I know. know. This language is becoming ever more present and it is something we need to be terrified of because it's radicalizing, especially young people. When I found Completely. out about this TikTok community where they were looking at, you know, fictional relationships in books and in, you know, TVs and in cartoons and deeming shows and TV shows and books as predatory because there's something more than a three year age gap is deemed pedophilia. Mm. <laughs> a, a tall man dating a short woman is because you know, men essentially desire prepubescent women. And so, uh, uh, you know, two people of the same age on the base of height difference is mm. again, a lack of consent. It is dangerous, dangerous territory. And I think there is so much more that we could say about it. And I'm sure there's a whole other book that you could write about these mm. new sort of trends. Well, but I've got a paper actually in the works. I've got a paper in the works on some of that discourse in, in universities, especially the discourse around grooming, safeguarding, and how it actually intersects with a lot of reactionary language, particularly that of prevent. But it also has echoes of the Muslim grooming gangs rhetoric as well. I mean, it's absolutely terrifying. Definitely, definitely. But yeah, as we said, we could probably talk about these things forever. I absolutely. <laughs> but I do think we've covered a lot of ground, even in this sort of shortish conversation. No, thank you so much. I do hope, again, we can have another conversation, actually. I think we've, at the beginning or reached the beginning of many topics, which I think should be explored further. Mm. But I'll leave it there for now. Thank you so much for your time, Alison. It's been a great conversation. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on. Please, I will leave. I was going to say, I normally leave my guest social medias in the in the description of the episode, but I know you're no longer there. So please check out Dr. Alison Phipps's work. Her papers, her books are available online. And until next time, peace out.